0: Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show.
1: Hey, baby girl. Hi. (laughs) Hey, Anna. (laughs) That was to Khaleesi, our third host. Yeah,
0: her little doggy host right here. Yeah. I don't call Ashley baby girl.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, No. I'm so <laughs> <You> wish. <laughs>
0: I had for a second I was like, "Wait, what? happy Valentine's Day." Yeah, happy Valentine's Day to you. Okay, so I have had a lot of uh personal stuff going yeah. on that has delayed the podcast a little bit, but now we're back on track just in time to end this season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, one last one, honey. And this uh this episode is really really long. It's going to be a two-parter. Okay. So today is part 1, and mm-hmm. next week it's going to be part 2. And then we'll be taking our our regular break between seasons. And then we're back at it. So today I'm doing the story of Cindy James. Have you ever heard of that? I don't believe so. Okay. I hadn't ever heard of it either. I don't know names. You know, like if you give me the story, then I'll know. But I don't know anyone's name. Okay. So I got all of my information from an Audible original podcast called Death by Unknown Event, which is hosted by Pamela Adlon and written by Danielle Elliott very very good okay and it's much more this is a really dense story with like so many details so you try to condense everything i tried to condense but if you want like you know every every detail every step of the way that's a really 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 good podcast on june 8th 1989 a roadside construction worker wandered off from the job site to find a secluded area to pee in the bushes he walked towards an abandoned home that had thick shrubbery where he found a woman's body. She was white with blonde hair. Her face was so bloodied and bruised and showing signs of decomposition that it was hard to tell by looking at her how old she might have been. She was clothed. She had one shoe on and the other was a few feet from her. Her jacket was laying open flat near her as if she had been sitting on it. She was curled on her side in a fetal position. Her wrists tied together behind her back with a black nylon stocking and her ankles were tied together with a black nylon stocking as well. There was a visible needle mark in the crook of her elbow, but no syringes of any kind were found at the crime scene. She was identified as a nurse named Cindy James, who was reported missing by her friends, neighbors, family, and colleagues two weeks earlier. The police knew Cindy well. She had spent the last seven years filing reports on a regular basis, claiming she was the victim of stalking, death threats, harassment of varying degrees, and several violent attempts on her life. They had records of Cindy filing over 100 reports over the course of seven years. The autopsy and toxicology reports later showed that she had 20 to 30 doses of a prescription sleep aid in her system, as well as 10 times the lethal amount of morphine. Within a week or so of finding her body, police announced that they had closed the investigation into her death. They stated there was no evidence of foul play and they believe Cindy died by committing suicide. To anyone who doesn't know this story, the conclusion the police came to is quite frankly impossible to believe given the state that her body was found in. But here's the thing. Every detail in this story supports the idea that she committed suicide, but it also supports the idea that she was murdered. So from what I understand, if you are familiar with the story, you fall firmly into one of two camps, suicide or murder. So I decided that I would tell the facts of Cindy's story as straightforward as I possibly can, without my personal opinion playing a role. That way you, as the listener, can come to your own conclusion. And it's a real roller coaster of a mystery, so I suggest listening very closely.
1: Okay. I almost yelled like as you were doing that intro. I'm like, her hands are behind her back. You're trying to tell me that this is not. Well, yeah, that's it, you know what I mean. It's I know. Like, come on, it sounds. It sounds <laughs> I wild. I don't want to bite my tongue. <laughs> yeah,
0: Cynthia Elizabeth Hack was born June twelfth, nineteen forty four. So she's a Gemini. She was the oldest of six kids, and being the oldest sibling, she grew up to really enjoy working with young children. In nineteen sixty six, Cindy became a registered pediatric nurse and began working at a center for children with emotional and behavioral problems in Vancouver, British Columbia. She eventually worked her way up to the director of the center, so she was very, very good at her job. Mm -hmm. While she was in nursing school, she began an affair with a psychiatrist named Dr. Roy Makepeace. Roy was 18 years older. He was married with two kids, but he didn't hesitate to pursue Cindy, and I guess she wasn't bothered by the fact that, you know, he's married. Yeah. They carried on an affair for quite a while, but eventually Roy's wife caught wind of it and left him. He and Cindy got married three days after his divorce was finalized. By all accounts, they seemed to be very happy together. Uh, They never had children, but it seems like they were both okay with it because they were really career focused people. But then, about fifteen years into their marriage, Roy accuses Cindy of having an affair, and she denies it. She swears that she isn't. But then, soon she learns that it's actually Roy who is having an affair, and he's he's doing that bullshit thing where he's just projecting. Yeah. (laughs) They attempted to work things out, but it sounds like it was a very volatile time for them. Okay. Cindy's colleagues noticed she was showing up to work with black eyes or various marks and bruises on her arms. Initially, Cindy had explanations for all of the injuries, but then one day she showed up to work with a broken ankle. And when her colleagues inquired, she told them the truth. Roy was responsible for all of the bruises and the broken ankle was a result of her falling down a staircase after Roy hit her and she lost her balance. She told them she was comfortable telling the truth now because she had just left Roy and was pursuing a divorce. This was July of 1982, so their marriage lasted like 16 years in total. 16? 16, yeah. Wow. Roy stayed in their home, and his mistress moved in with him. Cindy took her beloved dog, Heidi, and got a place of her own, and I guess despite the affair and the separation that followed and the fact that his new girlfriend was someone that he had slept with during his marriage... Mm -hmm. Cindy and Roy seemed to be on pretty good terms. They had friendly conversation. Uh, They got together a few times a week for coffee or dinners and then even did double dates a few times.
1: So maybe they're just people that were meant to be friends.
0: (laughs) Well, a few weeks into their separation, Cindy told a colleague that Roy's new girlfriend was accusing him of threatening her with a knife during a heated argument. Cindy wasn't concerned for the girlfriend or appalled by Roy's behavior. She was venting about the fact that his girlfriend was disrupting Roy's life by involving the police. So I think that that kind of provides some insight into Cindy's mindset towards him at that time. Like she left him because he was abusive, but didn't involve the police. And now she viewed his new girlfriend as a problem for reporting his abusive behavior to the police. As she should. Yeah. Three months later, on October 7th, 1982... Cindy received a threatening phone call. The next day she got another, and then the next day another, and then another. Soon she was getting threatening calls regularly, sometimes a couple times a day. Sometimes it was heavy breathing. Other times it sounded like a hissing sound. Sometimes it was a person whispering a threat against her. Sometimes it was total silence. And when the person did speak, Cindy said that she never recognized the voice, but it seemed like it was a man. And I actually have an audio clip of the caller leaving a threatening message on Cindy's machine that I'm going to play right now. Okay.
1: That's a chick. That's definitely a girl. I put money on it.
0: I mean, it's hard to know. That's not a man. That's a girl. Yeah. I mean... Yikes. yeah I mean I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not speculating yeah. about this story just I'm going because to there's so much detail <laughs> and I think your opinion's gonna change every like every, two minutes, every two yeah. minutes yeah. so it's like so I I realized like halfway through I'm like oh I need to go back and take out all of my little side notes mm-hmm. because it, it just distracts so much and it's I'm wrong every time <laughs> I'm just saying right now at this moment chick that's a chick yeah um, it's not the best audio quality. So if you didn't understand it, it says Cindy dead meat soon. The harassment also started to escalate. For the first couple of weeks, she was receiving regular phone calls. Then she started finding threatening notes in her mailbox. They were always made from like cutout letters from magazines that were then pasted together to form a death threat. And on occasion, the note would be accompanied by uh, photos of blonde women being strangled. The calls and notes often referenced her by name. So there was no chance that she was like not the intended for. target. Yeah. And a few weeks after the calls and notes became the norm, Cindy would go outside in the morning and find that the light bulbs to all of her exterior lights around her house had been unscrewed. So this was happening, you know, so much. I mean, even if it just happened once, I'm sure she still would have called the police, but she yeah. was like, because this was like ongoing, ever so present, she was calling the police constantly One of the responding officers was a guy named Pat McBride, who had been with the British Columbia Police for over a decade at that point. He and his new rookie partner, Andy, started responding to almost all of Cindy's calls. For three months, Cindy filed regular police reports every time a new incident happened, and Pat seemed to become infatuated with her. He seems to have a little bit of like a knight in shining armor complex, Uh and Cindy's very beautiful and demure, and so she really easily fit into this like damsel in distress image in his mind. Yeah. Pretty soon, Pat and Andy developed a routine. They'd clock in for their night shift, then head to Cindy's around 9 p.m. They'd have coffee and visit with her for a while, and then they would head out on patrol for a few hours. But Pat was becoming really fixated on this case. So he would call Cindy multiple times, even though they just left her house. Mm -hmm. He would call multiple times while they're on patrol. They're police officers, and he's just calling this chick to be like, "Hey, do you need anything? Are you doing good? Yeah, we need you, babe." And it's the night shift, so like if they're just starting their night shift at nine p.m., they visit her at the beginning. Like, what are they calling it? Like one in the morning? It's just Uh, I don't like it. Then they'd usually circle back to check on her in person. And if she was sleeping, they would just look around the outside of the property in the back alley to determine that, you know, there were no prowlers around. One time, they drove by her house in the middle of the night and found a man sitting inside of his car, parked in the alley directly behind Cindy's house. It was her ex-husband, Roy. When they approached him, he told them he was very worried about the threats that Cindy had been receiving, and he thought that if he camped out, he might be able to keep her safe. He had a rifle, a knife, and a handgun with him. Pat puffed out his chest and told Roy to leave because he was handling it. I got this, bro. (laughs) Literally, he was handling it and he was like, I'm capable of doing this myself. But for the next few months, police spotted Roy cruising around Cindy's neighborhood on several occasions in the middle of the night. Hmm. And he always claimed he was just trying to keep an eye on her. That's a great excuse. Cindy later mentioned to Pat that one night around 4 a.m., she heard a tapping on her bedroom window. And like out of a horror movie, she gets out of bed and slowly approaches and she opened the shades and she was shocked to see Roy standing there with a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. He told her that he had received two phone calls threatening Cindy's life. So he decided he would go to her house and stand guard so that she could rest easy. Cindy didn't open the window or invite him inside. The next day, they met for coffee and he told her that he came up with a theory that maybe the mafia was after her because some of the antics the mafia uses in movies reminds him of some of the harassment she's been experiencing. All right, Roy. He told her he had thought a lot about it and he wanted her to understand that if someone really wanted to, it would be very easy to break into her home and slit her throat while she slept.
1: So you better move back in with me, hun.
0: Literally, he told her he thought she'd be safer if she moved back in with him. But she declined the offer. Roy wasn't expecting this, and he became irate when she said no. He grabbed her arm, pinned it behind her back, and said, You'll be sorry. Towards the end of their marriage, Cindy had begun to confide in friends that Roy had become physical during episodes of anger. Sometimes he would leave her with a black eye. Sometimes he would slap her across the face. And other times he chose more unique methods to hurt her. For example, she was an avid gardener and she took pride in the many hours that she put into building and maintaining her garden. But one time during an argument, Roy went outside and took his anger out on the yard, stomping on all of the plants, yanking out whatever he could, destroying planters until her beautiful garden was utterly destroyed. Cindy wrote in her diary about the final year of her marriage to Roy, one entry reads, quote, The last year was like a nightmare all the time, always tense, always afraid of saying the wrong thing, trying to anticipate when to disappear for a while. It was like living with a volcano that frequently threatened to erupt and sometimes did with a horrible fury. Why did I stay? Because I was literally afraid he would kill me if I left. Uh, don't think about it. You left when you knew it was better to be dead than to live like that. I keep seeing Roy with his gun in his hand, waiting for me at the top of the stairs as I come in the house. For an eternity, he would never say a word, only smiled. And then he said, bang, bang, you're dead, with no expression. And only then turned the gun away. The monster. How did I not know what he really was? I think of him as so evil, a truly evil, frightening man. I think I've made him much larger than life. As much as I don't want it to be true, he still has the power to frighten me. So after this interaction where she turned Roy down, the harassment amped up. One day, she came home to find that her garden was destroyed, just like the time that Roy had done that when they were married. Then things escalated again. Several times a week, she would pick up her phone to make a call only to realize someone had cut her phone lines. And remember, this is in the early 80s, so if someone cuts your phone lines, then you're, you're screwed. screwed. You don't have the ability to contact anyone in an emergency. And you don't know that it's happened until you pick up the phone. It's frightening.
1: What also makes me wonder then, if she was doing the weekly coffee dates and things like that to keep it amicable because she was fearful of him. At first, I thought they had just a really weird dynamic or you know friendship, but now I'm just thinking he's doing it to, you know, or she was doing it to keep him. It's
0: very possible. Complacent. There were no patterns related to the line cutting either. I mean, sometimes it would be in the middle of the night. Uh, Other times it would be the middle of the day. Sometimes it would happen only moments after Cindy had just used the phone, which meant the person responsible was presently outside of her house. The calls and the notes continued almost daily, each one nastier than the last. Cindy reported to police that sometimes late at night, her dog would wake out of a dead sleep and begin ferociously barking towards a window. Sometimes Cindy could hear heavy footsteps outside her bedroom window. The security lights outside went from being simply unscrewed to fully smashed out. When there was fresh snow on the ground, sometimes she would find large footprints around her windows. One day she ran an errand. Uh, She's only gone for about an hour. And when she came back, she found that both her front and back doors were unlocked and one of them was left ajar, but she had made sure that everything had been locked up before she left Another time, she came home late one night and found a pillow from her bed, had been thoroughly slashed with a knife, and a key to her front door was sitting in the middle of her bedroom floor. After a few months of this nightmare, Pat brought up an interesting idea. He was coincidentally in the process of divorcing and needed a new place to live, and Cindy had a spare room, so they agreed it might be a win-win for him to rent it from her for a while. And you would think with a police officer living inside of your home, things would calm down, but that wasn't the case. His presence seemed to slow down the harassment, but that just meant it became impossible to predict when another phone call might come in or uh, you know, when to expect another note or act of vandalism. Pat became obsessed with protecting Cindy and catching whoever was terrorizing her. He installed new deadbolts, new security lights, and he convinced her to get a new unlisted phone number. He had the phone company also trace her calls, but all of the threatening ones cut off before a location could be determined.
1: Did you say that he had video cameras or security cameras installed?
0: Lights. 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 Okay, okay. Pat requested that the police put a 24-7 surveillance team on Cindy's house, but after doing so, the harassment stopped completely. So they'd take the surveillance team off, and almost immediately, Cindy would call and report another terrifying incident. They'd put the surveillance team back on, and all was quiet again. And the pattern would repeat like that for about a month straight. Yeah. During the time that Pat was living there, the calls happened less frequently and almost always came through when Cindy was alone. Pat did answer one once, but all he heard was heavy breathing. The call was traced to a nearby neighborhood, but not a specific location. Another time, he was standing near Cindy when she answered the phone, but no one spoke on the other end they could hear heavy breathing and what sounded like some kind of airport announcement over a loudspeaker in the background and the call was traced to the nearby airport but nothing came of it i think it goes without saying experiencing this on a daily basis for three months straight was so unsettling and it really started to take a toll on cindy but she was trying to be brave and strong and her friend suggested maybe she should move into an apartment I mean, that's more secure. She'll share walls with neighbors and it would be hard for someone to vandalize her space without being seen. But Cindy rejected this idea like immediately. She loved gardening and she worshipped her dog Heidi and really wanted her to have a yard to roam in. And she just, I think she, in her mind, she's like, no, I live in a house. I'm not going to let whoever this is force me into an apartment and live in in an environment I don't want to. Cindy found temporary refuge in her work because her home was obviously feeling less safe by the day. And Pat's presence wasn't helping like she had expected it would. She felt so suffocated by him that she actually asks him to move out after only a month. Wow, that's a bad sign. Yeah. And he agrees. Like You know, it's, it's not a big deal. They continued dating for a little while after this, but it fizzled out pretty quickly. But I thought that that was very telling because... In my mind, it's like I could see if I was in a desperate situation, I would you have, make it work. I, I would I would make it work. <laughs> make it it I'd work, figure yeah. it out. And, and then to to be so terrified in your own home and have a, you know, strong police officer who's like, oh, I'm going to save you Protection. living there. You know, even if you don't really like him, it's like better than being alone. But she was like, no, I'd rather be alone. Like, that's how suffocating this is. Cindy actually wrote in her diary that she felt taken advantage of by Pat during a time in which she was quite vulnerable. She wondered if he actually cared about catching the culprit or if he was just using this as an excuse to get close to her. After Pat moved out, the vandalism and threatening notes and calls resumed full force and then abruptly stopped. For two full weeks, there was zero harassment, nothing at all. No notes, no calls, no vandalism for two weeks she started to relax to feel normal again and then her tormentor tried to kill her so it's january of 1983 this is only three months into this ordeal and she's now living alone because pat just left and cindy's close friend agnes woodcock stopped by one night she knocked on the door but no one answered the lights were on inside and cindy's car was in the driveway so she waits a minute but then she figured cindy must be in the shower As Agnes was turning to leave, she heard a noise outside. She followed the sound around the corner and into the backyard and found Cindy on the ground, covered in blood and not moving. She had a black nylon stocking tied around her neck so tightly that Agnes couldn't even get her finger under it. Her hands were tied behind her back with a nylon stocking too, so Agnes called for help and eventually managed to cut the nylon from Cindy's throat. Cindy was breathing, but she was unconscious. She had bruises all around her face, a mark on her arm that looked like a prick from a syringe, cuts up and down her back and all over her legs, including a deep 10-inch cut on her ankle. Doctors stated the cuts were so clean and precise, they suspected a scalpel or razor blade was used. They also believed she was showing symptoms of having ingested a large amount of sedatives. Hmm. When police later interviewed Cindy in the hospital, she told them that she was walking towards her detached garage to get a box, but before she made it to the door, she felt someone grab her from behind and poke a needle into her shoulder. She tried to fight the man off, but he stayed behind her the whole time. She just remembers struggling to turn and look at him, but the only thing she saw were his white sneakers. Just before everything went black, he whispered in her ear, It's going to take a long time to die. The next thing she remembered was waking up in the hospital. She told police that she was beginning to think she might know who was behind the attacks, but she was too scared to tell them because she believed doing so would put her family in danger. To which the police responded, Are you telling us the truth about this attack? They told her that after she was taken to the hospital, an officer found blood drops in her bathroom. But according to Cindy's story, the attack took place outdoors where she then collapsed and remained until Agnes found her. Agnes stated that she never went inside the house, so she wasn't responsible for transferring blood to the bathroom. So this led police to believe that Cindy had reached a breaking point and attempted suicide in her bathroom. But then at the last moment, she panicked and staged an attack and was too embarrassed to tell the truth. Cindy was shocked to hear this and she burst into tears. She had no explanation for how the blood came to be in her bathroom. She suggested maybe the attacker went in there after she had passed out. Mm -hmm. And the police were like, "Mm -hmm, sure. And my initial reaction was like, wow, that's so heartless of the police to suggest that. I mean, she was literally just attacked. But to be fair, you do have to understand from the cop's perspective, this woman is being routinely harassed and she never hesitates to call the police. That means they're responding to calls at her home at least several times a week each time encountering a very frail and terrified almost paranoid woman and each time they see her she's a little bit less herself you know she's she's disappearing yeah so you know they're just they're watching her break down little by little for months on end and despite having periodic surveillance on the house sometimes with as many as 14 officers at one time police never observed anything suspicious So with that in mind, I think it's actually very logical for them to question if she's starting to lose the will to live, but Cindy denied this. She said she would never commit suicide, and even if she did try, she's a nurse, therefore she knows way more efficient ways to do it. She told police she desperately wants to live. That's why this harassment is so terrifying. So after this attack, her ex, Roy, suggested that she move back into the house that they had shared and he would get an apartment. So she agrees, and this actually seemed to work. I mean, there were no calls or notes or vandalism after she moved. However, for the first time, threatening notes started showing up at her office. Sometimes she would find one at her desk. Other times it would be mixed in with the mail that she received. Other times she would come outside after work and find one on her windshield. And this started happening so often that Cindy was determined to catch the sender in the act yeah. because it was like, how are you coming to a place of business it's and public. no and no one catches you? It's a, it's a huge bustling center, you know, with kids and families like being treated. So it's just, it seems crazy. After finding notes in her office several days in a row, Cindy's like, I'm going to sleep in my office and I'm going to surprise this motherfucker. It's ballsy. I like it. Yeah. But no one showed up. But the next day after she had gone home, another note was found in her office. A few weeks later, the vandalism, the calls, and the notes all found their way to her new home address. So Cindy moves again. She and the police all got the impression that when she moved to a new home, the stalker took several weeks, sometimes even a few months, to track down her new address. So during those times, Cindy was in this weird mental state you know because she's relieved to have a break from the harassment but the anxiety that she would feel wondering if today is the day her her tormentor would find her new house it was a very overwhelming feeling not to mention the fact that her office was no longer the safe haven that it once was you know that really messed with her too so her mental health went downhill fast everyone could see that the attack was affecting her very deeply She was already a slender person, but she lost an alarming amount of weight very quickly. She was skittish, even in public settings during the day or at work where she was surrounded by so many people. She had always been a smoker, but now she was obsessively stepping outside every few minutes to have another cigarette. She was becoming depressed and pessimistic about the possibility that the police would ever catch her, torment her. Cindy had already been struggling to keep it together, but after the attack, her fear and paranoia went into overdrive. It's now been about a year since this harassment began. She's done her best to not let it affect her work, but at some point it became so obvious to her colleagues that Cindy needed to take a break. So she took a few weeks off and traveled to Indonesia to visit her brother who was stationed there at the time. When she returned home, she was her old self. Her loved ones noted that she was optimistic. Her complexion was healthy. I mean, to sum it up, she was just glowing. Yeah. She had spent weeks in a new place with no threats made against her, no attacks. For the first time in a year, she felt safe and normal. She probably had slept too for the first time in a year. Probably, yeah. So she had you know, a renewed determination to catch her stalker. She got a taste of what it was like to have her life back, and she wanted to keep it that way but that temporary optimism was snuffed out real fast. One night, not long after returning from her trip, Cindy woke up to her dog, Heidi, ferociously barking. She was understandably too afraid to go investigate, but she picked up her phone to find that someone had cut the lines again. So she stayed up all night holding Heidi close and waiting for the sun to rise, wondering if she was about to be attacked again. When she finally felt safe enough to go outside the next day, She was horrified to find a dead cat on her porch with a note that said, you're next. For several weeks after this, Cindy would periodically find dead cats hanging from nooses on her fence line with more of the same threatening notes suggesting that Cindy would be next. This is on top of regular threatening calls and notes and vandalism around her house that ranged from smashed out light bulbs to sometimes she would return home to find all of her doors wide open but no sign of anyone inside. Mm -hmm. Other times she would find a window broken, but no sign of theft or anyone around. In November of 1983, when he's seeing firsthand how fragile Cindy has become, Pat McBride, that police officer who lived with her briefly, he suggested that she should consider hiring a private investigator. Between a PI and the police, it seemed like catching this person would be much more attainable so he connects her with a guy named Ozzy Caban. In many ways, Ozzy took over Pat's knight in shining armor role in Cindy's life, but without the romantic element. He was available to her by phone 24 seven. He drove past her house periodically to make sure all was well. Because Cindy's phone lines were so often cut, Ozzy gave her a two-way radio to keep with her so that she could reach him without a phone. Even if Ozzy wasn't available, he had a team of employees and assistants that Cindy could always reach. So they created a routine where every morning Cindy would call Ozzy's office and report to his assistant what her day consisted of, where she would be and at what time. Prior to leaving the house, she would call and say, okay, I'm leaving now. I should be at work in 20 minutes. Then she'd get to her office and call again and say, okay, I'm safely inside. I'll be here until five. Then before heading home at five, she would call again and say, okay, I'm heading home now. I'll be there in 20. And then of course she'd call and confirm that she made it home safely Ozzy believed in his gut that Cindy was telling the truth. He said he never takes on a client that he thinks isn't being 100% honest with him. But he said he always got the sense that there was a crucial piece to the puzzle that she was withholding. He also said getting information from her about even the most basic of things felt like pulling teeth. In his opinion, her level of terrified did not match her level of willingness to offer insight, if that kind of makes sense.
1: Her fear didn't match her willingness to offer insight. Okay. So she so, was,
0: she was very fearful. But she wasn't
1: offering anything to help.
0: Yeah. And okay. and then he, on top of that felt like there's like maybe a little bit more that she knows that could really help me, but she's not telling me. It really could so, imply that she knew who it was, but she didn't want to reveal. Yeah. You know. It could, it could imply a lot, but ultimately what he who's, knows, who's for, know? what he knows for certain is she's very fearful. Yeah. So it's now January of 1984, which means Cindy has been living in this nightmare for over a year. And it's wow. been one year since the um, attack where okay. Agnes found her. In addition to police, Ozzy is also notified with every new threatening phone call, note, or act of vandalism. Police were still actively working on her case. But with each new report, it's clear they are really starting to question Cindy's mental health more and more. And Ozzie said that he understood why police would doubt Cindy's reliability, but she was also experiencing daily psychological warfare. So it's like, what did you expect from her? She's not exactly going to be in the strongest mindset. Yeah. One night, Cindy had reported to Ozzie that she was home safe and planning to stay in for the evening. But a few hours later, his assistant alerted him that there were strange noises coming from the two-way radio he used to communicate with Cindy. So Ozzy went straight to her home to check on her. The lights were on inside. Her car was in the driveway. And when he knocked on the door, he could hear Cindy's dog barking like crazy. But no one answered. He started yelling, going from door to door, window to window, until he saw her. Cindy was laying flat on her stomach in the kitchen in a pool of blood. He broke the door down and rushed to her, but he could tell right away she was already dead. Ozzie found Cindy's dog, Heidi, shaking and terrified, hiding underneath the kitchen table. He scooped her up and went outside to wait for the police. When they arrived, there was, you know, no sense of urgency because Ozzie had already told them that Cindy was deceased. As they're taping off the crime scene, an officer gets close to inspect Cindy's body and he realizes she's still breathing. She was laying flat on her stomach in a pool of blood with one of her hands laying flat, palm down on the ground next to her face. Her attacker had written a note that read, Dead bitch, placed it on the back of Cindy's hand, and then drove a paring knife all the way through, bolting her hand into the kitchen floor. They also discovered that Cindy had a black nylon stocking around her neck. It was tied so tightly around her throat that it was hidden in the folds of her skin. Oh my God. Which is really saying something because remember, by this point, she is really scary thin. Yeah. So the fact that she. It, it's crazy. I can't even imagine that. At the hospital, doctors determined that Cindy had been heavily sedated prior to the stabbing, and it took a while to work its way out of her system. When she was finally alert enough to be interviewed by police, she told him that she remembered looking out her window and seeing a man standing at her gate. She remembered he was white. He looked to be in his mid-30s, medium build, haircut to his shoulders, about six feet tall. Before she could do anything she felt someone hit her on the side of the head after she fell to the ground she tried to get away but strong hands held her down and injected something into her arm then she woke up in the hospital with a bandaged hand based off evidence found at the scene police suspected that cindy was hit over the head and then crawled away but was attacked just as she reached the two-way radio they noted that it looked as though someone had been trying to mop up blood from the floor as well but there was no evidence of blood on Cindy's cleaning products. Mm-hmm. So it seems like someone brought a mop with them. Yeah. To clean it up. Well, they're good at hiding. I mean, if they, yeah, they're yeah. good at getting away. Whoever's with doing this is very intelligent. Absolutely. Ozzy remembered that when he arrived, the doors and windows had all been locked. That's why he had to kick the door in. Mm-hmm. This means Cindy either let the person in and then locked the door behind them and then was attacked, or the attacker had a key and snuck in on her. But Cindy said that the only people who had keys to her house were her friend Agnes and her former police officer boo, Pat McBride. For the police, they're like, okay, we have been on this hamster wheel for over a year now and not a single lead has come up. But for Ozzy, you know, this is new for him and he has a different level of investment and determination involved. And patience probably at yeah, this point Yeah, because he's, he's not a cop dealing with daily things all the time, yeah. you know, it's, it's just different. Ozzy knew Pat McBride really well. I mean, Pat is the one who connected him to Cindy. Mm-hmm. But Ozzy didn't like or respect him. Oh. He said it's based on a gut feeling. He believed deep down that Pat was not a good man. So in Ozzy's mind, Pat was a leading suspect. Ozzy followed him a number of times, and he said secretly tailing a cop is very hard to do. Uh-huh. In that on more than one occasion he observed pat go to cindy's home and peek through her windows as she changed her clothes that's disgusting the police themselves even looked into pat's possible involvement i think that's probably due to the fact that several sexual assault allegations were brought against pat which ultimately led to him being fired from the force but both the police department and ozzy end up ruling him out as a suspect Ozzy believed that Pat really wanted to sleep with Cindy, so he took advantage of the impossible situation that she had found herself in. You know, according to Cindy's diaries, that kind of backs up Ozzy's theory. She she felt that way too. Ozzy believed that for a guy like Pat, who he says, quote, liked to do sex with women, finding have s- the sex, <laughs> do the sex, Make the sex. <laughs> uh, finding Cindy in the position that she was in was probably like hitting the jackpot a beautiful single woman stuck in a scary scenario and not exactly in a position to turn down a cop's offer to protect her. But ultimately, he doesn't believe Pat was capable of doing harm to anyone. So Ozzy moves on from this theory and begins to zero in on Cindy's ex-husband Roy as the prime suspect. Apparently, he had been convinced from the very beginning that Roy was behind all of this. And after speaking with Cindy in the hospital um, after the knife attack, Mm -hmm. Ozzie returned to her home to investigate the crime scene further. He said that after looking around her garage, he found that someone had created a makeshift seating area. Boxes, blankets, and other junk were all arranged in a space that looked like someone had been camped out with a direct view of Cindy's back door. He came to the conclusion that Roy must have been watching her from the garage, waiting for the perfect moment then he attacked her and went back to the garage to wait and watch to see if anything happened next, but then managed to escape without Ozzy or any of the police noticing. Ozzy said that after sharing his theory with Cindy, she rejected it and stated she did not believe her ex was involved in this. But he claims that Cindy said this in a way that allowed him to read between the lines. So he walked away like, oh, don't worry, I'm picking up what you're putting down, Cindy. Yeah, yeah. But really, she was like, no, seriously, I don't think he's involved. It's that simple. Okay. I'm curious. why. I'm curi- I wish I, we could know her thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Cindy's diary entries later showed that while she had reason to fear Roy, she didn't believe he was involved in her torment and that she felt pressured by Ozzy to back up his theory. So it seems like regardless of Cindy's input, Ozzy was determined to expose Roy's involvement, so he went undercover. He claims that he discovered some pretty terrible truths, but nothing that connected Roy to Cindy's harassment. So before I dive into his supposed findings, none of which can be verified, by the way, Okay. it should be noted that many people directly involved with this, ranging from police working the case at that time to journalists who have interviewed him over the years to even the group of people who produce that Audible podcast, they all note how incompetent and unreliable Ozzy seems to be. So okay. just keep that in okay. mind. So Ozzy claims that he found proof that Roy was running a very successful drug dealing operation out of his home, distributing drugs throughout Canada and South Africa. He was supposedly dealing everything from illegal narcotics to various prescription drugs that he as a psychiatrist had easy access to. He claimed that Roy was involved with several dangerous dishonest people through months of surveillance, undercover operations, and interviewing people who knew Roy over the years. Ozzy formed an image of Roy as a highly respected Vancouver psychiatrist that was actually an underworld kingpin who was as intelligent as he was violent with the ability to easily control and manipulate those around him. So with this supposed knowledge in hand, Ozzy comes up with a theory that explains Roy's involvement in Cindy's harassment. So this is what he thinks happened. Roy was a kingpin. Cindy was none the wiser. Sometime towards the end of their marriage, Cindy discovered drugs in their home and angrily flushed them and then left Roy for good. Roy blew up, but you know what's done is done, and the couple attempts to be amicable in their divorce. After Cindy moves out, he asks if he can store some of his stuff in her detached garage, and she's like, sure, no problem. A few months go by, and Cindy discovers that the boxes she is storing for Roy are actually full of drugs several hundred thousand dollars worth of drugs. Ooh. so she flushes every last bit. Ozzy believes that it's possible Cindy didn't understand the magnitude of her actions. He thinks maybe she believed that Roy was dealing drugs all on his own, when in reality he was probably part of a much larger larger organization. Mm-hmm. So by flushing such a huge stash, she unknowingly put a target on her back. Creating enemies, yeah. yeah. Ozzy thinks that when Roy found out, he couldn't or wouldn't keep this a secret to protect Cindy and that either Roy and his associates or perhaps just the associates began harassing Cindy as an intimidation tool to keep her quiet and remember Ozzy always got the impression that Cindy was withholding an important piece of information so in his mind this theory fits like a glove yeah Yeah. Uh, so that's Ozzy's theory and he claims that when he brought this idea to Cindy she did admit that there was some truth to it But she didn't really specify what she was referencing. What we know for certain is that by this time, Cindy was very upfront with both Ozzy and the detectives that Roy had become physically abusive towards the end of their marriage. And she feared him on a very deep level. So I think it's safe to assume she was probably confirming that Roy was a dangerous person. Mm -hmm. That, you know. But Ozzy's theory was compelling enough that when he brought it to police, they took it seriously and investigated these claims. They put a secret surveillance team on both Cindy and Roy, but didn't find either person doing anything suspicious. How they looked into Ozzy's claims of Roy running drugs isn't very clear, but whatever it was that they did, they did not find evidence to support that idea. But he wasn't ruled out as a suspect, so police brought him in for questioning. Roy misunderstood. And he thought that they were asking for his help to solve the case. So he sat right down and got to work spouting off all these wild theories. Mm-hmm. First, he explained his stupid mafia idea. The one that he had mentioned to Cindy right so after the harassment started. Asking. Seriously. <laughs> None of these people in this story have connections to the mafia. But because he had seen movies about organized crime syndicates, <laughs> he just yeah. felt like, well, this makes sense. Just as Godfather on the loop. Seriously. And the cops were like, yeah, that's a little far-fetched. And Roy's like, okay, say no more. I have more theories, each one wilder than the last, so you just sit tight. Yeah. His next theory made a bit more sense, but was still very far-fetched. Roy believed it was possible that Cindy's tormentor could be tied to her work somehow. And I mentioned earlier that Cindy was the head nurse at a center for children with behavioral problems. It wasn't uncommon to work with families who dealt with domestic violence or who abused their kids, who used drugs and so forth. So as much as she helped many children grow up to be happy, healthy adults, plenty of her patients grew up to repeat the same types of toxic cycles that they had grown up with. One of the children that Cindy worked with grew up to be a criminal named Johnny Guitar. He spent several years in prison where he was eventually killed. Roy had a theory that this young patient had been obsessed with Cindy, then when he was sent to prison as an adult. He must have talked about Cindy so often that it literally drove his cellmate to insanity, hearing her name over and over and over and over and over for years on end. So Roy theorizes that by the time Johnny was killed in prison, he'd already driven his cellmate to insanity. Then, when that cellmate got out of prison, he was now so crazed with this fixation on destroying this Cindy woman because she inadvertently destroyed his life. There is no evidence. It feels very far-fetched. It, it, the, it's, all, it's, it's almost honestly, stupid. Honestly, it's almost as stupid as the mafia one. Yeah. But it, there's no evidence of anything unusual or concerning happening during Cindy's time with this particular patient, Johnny. There's no evidence that Johnny ever attempted to find Cindy once he reached adulthood. And no one in his life has any knowledge of him mentioning her name at any point in his life. Roy seemed to quite literally pull this theory out of his ass. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. But it is worth acknowledging that up to this point, no one had really considered her job as the potential missing piece to the puzzle. Most of her patients came from broken, dysfunctional, or abusive homes. So while her role was to help the child, she was more often than not working pretty closely with the child's entire family unit, which means she was interacting with some unstable parents. Yeah. So Roy's next theory was that maybe she had angered one of these types of parents and they were now trying to ruin her life. But later on, Cindy's colleagues disputed this. They said that for every patient at the Children's Center, an entire team was assigned, not just one person. And there were no other colleagues experiencing harassment of any kind. Mm-hmm. And if there was an unstable parent out there looking for revenge, it wasn't likely that they'd only target one individual yeah. because they just had too many interactions with a group of people.
1: I could see an obsession starting, though. You know, that's really the only the option. I don't yeah. think it's an anger situation.
0: It's right about this time that I imagine the detectives in the interview room have probably hit their limit listening to Roy's ramblings. So this is when they cut him off and tell him he's actually there to be questioned as a suspect. He's not. uh, oh shit, really?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I don't like that theory. (laughs) That's far-fetched.
0: They tell him that they are aware he was physically abusive to Cindy in their marriage. They also tell him that they're aware that shortly after the harassment began, he invited Cindy to move back in and she declined. They tell him that they know he responded by becoming irate, pinning Cindy's arm behind her back and snarling, you'll be sorry. Roy admits that, yes, he had slapped Cindy across the face with an open hand a few times throughout their marriage. But he was by no means an abusive husband because it wasn't like ongoing abuse. And that's what he classified as an abusive husband. It was just husband. sporadic abuse. Yeah, it was just on occasion. Yeah, it was just once in a while. And he denied being involved in harassment in her harassment in any capacity. Police had nothing concrete on him anyways, so they had to let him go, but they made it very clear he was now their number one suspect, and they were not going anywhere. Roy left the station that day a free man, but he was closely tailed by both police and Ozzy for three months straight. Both parties felt optimistic that with enough pressure, Roy would slip up and reveal the truth. The detectives working on her case asked Cindy if she suspected his involvement, and whether or not she knew of anything suspicious or illegal about Roy or his life. And she said, honestly, I don't believe that he's involved. And the only suspicious thing that she could think to tell them is that Roy used to be obsessed with witch doctor in his native South Africa and that he had a particular fascination with voodoo and its supposed ability to harm or kill another person without even coming into physical contact with them. But with that being said, she truly did not suspect he was harassing her. Police began interviewing several people who knew Roy, which is how Cindy's family learned for the first time that he had been abusive. Cindy lived a minimum of three hours away from her nearest relative, so despite being emotionally close to her family, it was easy to hide the crumbling of her marriage and the abuse that he inflicted on her, and then once they split up, she didn't confide in her family like she had done with her colleagues, which I'm just assuming is because her family members weren't the ones who were noticing bruising and asking questions, you know? Of course. Cindy's parents, Otto and Matilda, forbid everyone in the family from having ongoing communications with Roy. Ozzie and the police believed he was behind the harassment, so her parents believed it too. And they wrote off Cindy's denial of it as just that. Denial. Denial. Yeah. One time, her dad even wore a wire and then met with Roy hoping to catch him in a lie or get a recorded confession. But Roy wouldn't budge. It didn't matter who he was speaking to, he denied any involvement. Interestingly, though, during this three month period where Ozzie, the police and Cindy's family, you know, really pulled in on him as the prime suspect, Cindy's stalker went silent for three months straight. She did not receive a single threatening phone call or no, and she certainly wasn't attacked after they learned of Roy's abuse. Cindy told her family that he had been abusive throughout their marriage, but that it ramped up pretty significantly in the last year. She told them that he was manipulative and obsessed with control and that she feared him still, even after a divorce. So from this point on, Roy was removed from Cindy's life and her family entirely. After three months of tirelessly following Roy's every move, Ozzie and the police back off and pull surveillance off of him. And almost immediately, Cindy's harassment begins again. First, it's just a phone call once or twice a week. Then the next week, it's three calls plus a threatening note. Then they happen more frequently. Then the vandalism begins again with new additions this time. Like sometimes Cindy will be home inside and someone will throw something through the window shattering it. So this is the pattern the stalker has developed and followed pretty closely. It seems to build slowly over the course of a few weeks, then abruptly stops. It's silent just long enough that she begins to feel like, oh, maybe this is all over then. And it's at that moment in time that a physical attack takes place. After each attack, police ramp up their presence, which triggers another period of silence from the stalker, and then police eventually back off, and that's when the calls begin again and the cycle repeats. So it's now June of 1984. It's been about six months since the attack with the knife through her hand. Cindy is at home spending the day working on her beloved garden. She'd been very anxious and on edge because she knows based off the pattern, it's about time that the harassment Mm -hmm. starts up again. But gardening is, you know, cathartic for her and she gets really lost in it. A few hours go by when Cindy freezes and her blood runs cold. She doesn't remember the last time she saw her dog, Heidi. She looks around and she doesn't see her. Cindy gets up and starts calling for Heidi, slowly moving around the yard. But Heidi isn't there. And you have to understand, Cindy and Heidi had a very special tight bond. Heidi was Cindy's companion, her baby, her therapy dog. She was Cindy's pride and joy. girl. Yeah, she's just like my little Khaleesi girl. And since the harassment began, Heidi was more often than not Cindy's only source of happiness.
1: Yeah.
0: Everyone who knew Cindy knew Heidi. She rarely went anywhere without her dog, including work. Heidi was a regular fixture in Cindy's office. With the exception of occasional circumstances, Heidi never left Cindy's side. Cindy walks around the side of the house and stops dead in her tracks when she sees her back door. Oh my God. It's securely shut. But Cindy had intentionally left it open. She had been coming in and out so much that she intentionally left it open so that Heidi wouldn't get locked in or out and get separated from her. I mean, and that's what I mean. Like even Heidi sitting inside the house while Cindy's outside gardening was unusual. Yes, of, of course. Cindy bursts into tears and frantically calls Ozzy over the two-way radio. She is hysterical. He cannot understand what it is that she's trying to say. So he rushes over to the house and he said that he had never seen Cindy like this before. She was just inconsolable. She was expressing more emotion and upset now than she had after he'd found her with the knife in her hand. Ozzy opened up the back door and searched the house. No one was inside, but after a few minutes, he heard whimpering. Ozzy found Heidi with a rope tied tightly around her neck, which attached to a chair that forced her to stay hidden underneath the seat of it. She was terrified, shaking so violently she was almost vibrating. She was sitting in her own urine and feces, and the rope was so tight around her neck that she could only make a squeaking sound. As soon as he cut the rope, she bounded out of the house and jumped into Cindy's arms. Inside the house, Ozzie found a new threatening note that was sexual in nature. He also found several cigarette butts piled on a windowsill that looked out directly at the spot that Cindy had been gardening, and they weren't the brand that Cindy smoked. Ozzie and the police later determined that the rope found around Heidi's neck was the same rope found around the necks of the dead cats that had yeah. been in her yard a few months earlier. By this point in time, Cindy's friends and family say that her mental health was at an all-time low. She was fragile, both physically and mentally. She was becoming a shell of herself in so many ways. She was really depressed. And it seemed that her job and Heidi's companionship was all that was keeping her afloat. And as horrifying as it was to be attacked multiple times, the idea of someone harming Heidi or taking her away from Cindy forever, that was an unbearable thought for Cindy. Apart from the cigarette butts, police didn't find any evidence of another person being inside the home that day. What Cindy didn't know at the time was that the police were beginning to question amongst themselves whether or not Cindy really had a stalker at all or if she was actually mentally ill in staging all of this harassment. It didn't matter to them that Cindy seemed to really care for Heidi. So in their minds, this dog attack felt like further confirmation that Cindy was possibly unstable. Earlier in the story, when the police doubted her word, they were just doubting that she was really attacked They had just suspected that she had tried to commit suicide, but now they're beginning to wonder if she's being honest about all that has gone on. It's been almost three years since this began and they have not come anywhere near close to catching the culprit. They don't even know what they're, who they're looking for. looking for. You know, they don't know anything yet, but to Cindy's friends and family, they felt like Heidi's attack was proof that Cindy wasn't behind this harassment. And I should clarify, they never believed that to begin with, but they knew that the police had their suspicions so to her family they're like, there's just there's no way Cindy could harm another living being. She didn't even like being apart from her dogs, so she certainly That's wasn't love capable of yeah, She wasn't capable of harming her or killing cats for that matter. But hearing that the police were questioning the entire story now, that pushed Cindy to the edge. She felt like a scary intelligent psychopath was out there slowly taking apart her sanity piece by piece and taking pleasure in watching her crumble from afar. Now the police, the ones who were supposed to protect her and catch this bad guy are like, well, is there even a bad guy, Cindy? Come on, you can tell us the truth. So then she feels incredibly alone and no one's going to help her. Of course. But Cindy and Ozzy were like, well, the pattern speaks for itself. You know, this is going to continue and maybe you'll be able to catch them soon. So if we're considering Heidi's attack, then we should expect the person to back off for a little bit and then come back in a few weeks and start the phone calls and notes again. But that isn't what happened. A month later, in July of 1984, one of Ozzy's assistants called him at 10.30 p.m. and told him that Cindy failed to report that she had arrived home safely. Earlier that evening, she had called into Ozzy's office like normal. She told the assistant that she was taking Heidi to a local park. She would be there for about an hour, and then she planned to head home around 9.30 p.m. It's worth noting that at that time of the year in Vancouver, the sun doesn't even set until 10 p.m., And the park she was going to was very bustling. You know, lots of people jogging. Families are out. Tons of people taking their dogs out for walks. Basically, it's just like very normal for a lot of people to be out soaking up every last moment of sunshine. So, you know. At 10 p.m.? Because the sun doesn't set till 10 p.m. I know. That's just remarkable to me. But Cindy never called to report that she was home safely. After an hour, the assistant informed Ozzy, who raced to the park. And after running through trails, shouting her name, he finds Heidi by herself, dragging her leash around, and Cindy was nowhere to be found. And that is the end of part one. Okay, I was like, what do you know? <laughs> Do I say anything? No, that's that's the end of part one. Oh my gosh. I like how Khaleesi got up right as you started talking about dogs. She's like, you know what? This is too much for me. She's like, this is inappropriate. I had no idea you guys had a podcast about attacking dogs. Dogs? You guys are
1: sick. <laughs> no. Sorry, Khaleesi girl. Well, I cannot wait to hear part two. Yeah. My God. Buckle up. It's buckled. I'm already strapped in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's buckled. I'm already buckled. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.